Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. We're in the middle of the biggest public health crisis in at least a century, and it's one that has touched pretty much every person in every country on the planet. I don't know when you were last in a hospital or health center, I hope it's been a while, but these days, they're not only at the center of the pandemic, playing an essential role in protecting all of us, they're also in the middle of a transformation into a digitally enabled future. Canada has made a lot of progress in the digital transformation of healthcare, but we're nowhere near where we could be. Video consultations, tracing apps, biometric screening, these all could become part of a new normal. A lot of Canadian hospitals and technology companies are working on this, among them the doctors and researchers at McGill University Health Centre and the AI scientists at the Montreal Institute of Learning Algorithms. They're making Montreal one of the top global centres in digital health. Dr. Abhinav Sharma teaches medicine at McGill University, where his research focuses on experimental medicine and the use of digital health to streamline follow-up and therapy selection for patients. Valerie Pisano is CEO of Mila, the Montreal Institute of Learning Algorithms, and is part of an emerging group of women leading tech companies. Abhinav, Valerie, welcome to RBC Disruptors. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you. Happy to be here. So just as we kick off, I wonder if you can both give us a brief sense of your organizations. Valerie, I'm going to start with you and Mila, the Montreal Institute of Learning Algorithms. Love that name. A really dynamic and important institute in the world of AI. Give us a sense what uh, Mila is up to these days. Mila was founded by Professor Yasha Bengio from University of Montreal. Uh, many people know he's a world-renowned Canadian scientist. Mila is over 400 researchers from universities of Montreal and McGill and almost 100 staff, all working towards developing AI and accelerating innovation for the benefit of all. Abhinav, you're a professor at McGill, but also working at the Research Institute at the McGill University Health Center. Maybe you can give us a sense of what the Research Institute is up to in the middle of COVID. The McGill University Health Center is a health system affiliated with McGill University. It's a bilingual academic health network. The Research Institute focuses on everything from basic science all the way to clinical trials to epidemiology. And in the face of COVID, there's certainly been a lot of pivoting to identifying both the basic science of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, all the way up to using digital health and artificial intelligence strategies to improve our care for patients with COVID-19. This is also such a fascinating intersection of technology and healthcare and is why we're having this conversation and want to hear a lot from both of you on how you're coming at this, both from a healthcare research perspective and a technology perspective. But maybe we can start with the crisis itself. And Abhinav, give us a sense of what surprised you most about the Canadian healthcare system in the midst of this crisis. A few things that really struck me personally. As a background, I work as a cardiologist with a specialty in heart failure. But uh, we all had to rapidly transition to provide care for patients with COVID-19. And what was very, very striking to us was the speed and the rapidity with which it reached Canada. You know, we first heard inklings of this in December, where we saw the news coming out of China and Wuhan, and there was a lot of confusion on how big of a deal this was. Was this actually just another flu, but probably if I was to, to pick one thing that how rapidly and how quickly it spread, but I was also 
uh, awed by our healthcare providers to take up the mantle to fight this disease, despite the fact that we didn't have a lot of information on how uh, virulent it would be or how it would impact mortality if, if you contracted it. So, On the innovation side, what's impressed you most in terms of what's helped us pivot? And so on the innovation front, what we have noticed is much like other pandemics in the past where it necessitates a very rapid shift to a new paradigm of healthcare delivery. For example, we had to very quickly pivot to seeing patients over teleconferences and over televisits, which you know, would seem that this is something that should have happened a very long time ago, that patients who are at their home can communicate with a healthcare provider for a visit in the comfort of their own home. But this was actually not the case for the vast majority of patients. This is just one example of many, but the fact that we've had to very quickly pivot healthcare delivery to do this in a remote fashion, there was a risk that if we had patients who are immunosuppressed, like those with uh, cancers or those who uh, had a transplant, if they contracted COVID while here, you know, they would have really bad outcomes. And so we really had to pivot to the system of not seeing patients face-to-face and dealing and talking with them over the phone and trying to manage them medically over the phone. So it was a big shift to actually embrace this technology, which seems sort of basic and rudimentary, but actually from a medical point of view, to deliver healthcare over a phone or over a Skype visit is actually quite a paradigm shift and something that we've had to embrace rather quickly. I said we didn't plan or prepare for this crisis, but in many ways, the tech world has been preparing for something like this, and that's enabled this sort of pivot. And Valerie, I wonder if you can share some insights on how the tech community and the AI community has responded to this crisis. This context reminds us of the incredible vulnerability of human beings, but also of the potential of how technology can support us in these difficult times and facing these difficult challenges. At Mila, within days of the pandemic hitting Canada, we had dozens of researchers that were mobilizing around projects. Today, I think we have close to 10 different projects that are ongoing. One of the great advances of AI in recent years has been around looking, for example, at images of, let's say, lungs in the cases of COVID, right? And being able to quickly support doctors trying to make a diagnostic. So we have projects going on that front also. Some of the more exciting applications of AI, on the one hand, AI allows you to create a bit of a simulator environment where you can rapidly test a lot of things in parallel. So imagine what we do usually in labs, but you can run this really in a very, very accelerated fashion. And so they're analyzing billions of different molecules to figure out which ones are more responsive to the COVID virus to then be able to orient work in labs that are developing antivirals. But one of the areas where we were passionate about technology contributing was the idea of tracing the virus. And in particular with AI, being able to predict days before people would have symptoms, if yes or no, they might be contagious. And so making sure that we're not in contact with other people in those early days of the contagion. And so there's so many different ways where AI is being solicited right now. And it really is the perfect context to say, okay, if we push the boundary of innovation, how can these technologies support us as humble and vulnerable human beings as we face this pandemic in the months and probably years ahead. AI requires data. Data requires patients to participate, to opt in and hopefully be comfortable with that. And came across a comment from the CEO of New York Presbyterian Hospital who said 45% of their visits now are telehealth. He doesn't see that going back. The horse is out of the barn was his line. Abhinav, is that a fair assessment? 
Yeah, John, uh, not only has the horse been let out of the barn, the barn has been blown away, burnt down. There is no barn. It's a new, it, there's something else. I think this pandemic has fundamentally shifted how we think about healthcare and healthcare delivery. Similar to the comment made you know, by many people, I think that when we look at how to deliver healthcare right now, the pandemic has really exposed some of the, the frailties within a healthcare system. And your frailty from a medical concept reflects a state when you're not able to maintain homeostasis when you have outside stress. And that's actually what's happened in our current healthcare system. What that means is when you had elderly patients or people who were immunosuppressed who had to travel long distances to come here for visits, now that paradigm is shifting to be able to deliver healthcare outside of the brick and mortar settings and push that into the communities where people are living to make healthcare more accessible to some individuals. But like Valerie was saying, you know, our ability to now leverage digital technologies have fundamentally changed what, we, what we're going to do. And I don't see it converting back to um, a system that we had before where everyone had to come back into the hospital to receive quality care. I think we can now start to explore the strategies in which AI, machine learning, and digital technologies can optimize the delivery of care outside of the hospital setting. As I listen to you, Abhinav, I wonder also if this pandemic isn't accelerating the shift towards more preventive, predictive health management versus the more traditional kind of reactive after the fact, this is your diagnostic, this is the treatment you need, right? So again, this is one of the big contributions of machine learning in particular, but digital technologies more broadly is you can see what will probably happen to this patient ahead of time. And so it, it really shifts the role of the health system and of, of the healthcare professional in general. That's such a fascinating point because some of the barriers to digital transformation and health in the past have simply been tech phobia. But another barrier is privacy and our comfort with uh, our data. And maybe there's a bit of hesitation about, Valerie, that predictive nature. Maybe some of us don't want to know. How are you thinking through those challenges, especially around data privacy and sensitivities around predictive capabilities? How are you thinking through that at Mila? Let me start by saying I think this entire conversation about privacy and data protection is crucial, it's critical, it's fundamental. I think it also goes beyond the conversation about healthcare or technology in the context of the pandemic. I have to, if I'm perfectly honest, last summer, one of my favorite books was Yuval Harari's 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And one of the big arguments he makes in this book is around the value of data, right? So in the 21st century, data is the new asset. And he argues how quickly we all just give it away for free to Facebook, to Instagram, to whatever new gizmo is kind of the thing of the week that we want to have on our iPhone and use and share with our friends. And so, number one, I think I want to say the conversation about data is a much broader one. And then number two, I'm curious about why it suddenly becomes supercharged when it's about helping people protect their own health or in the context of the pandemic, help other people protect their health, right? So this collective effort towards if we all share this information about who has the virus and where you've been, we can actually keep each other safe, right? And so there's a bit of a, a contradiction or a polarity that I've been wrestling with in the last few weeks and that I, I felt appropriate to name. And I'll repeat, I think this is a fundamental conversation that is not only about machine learning applied to health is just more broadly about how we as citizens are thinking about our data, who we give it to, under which premise and why. 
help me understand why I'm more willing probably to share data about whatever I'm doing on social platforms than I might be about my own health, even if I'm comfortable with the fact that it's secure and accessible only to health professionals. Why, why are we like that as a species? I've had people argue with me saying, no, but the, the stuff I put on Facebook isn't as, let's say, sensitive as my health. Then I wonder, because on Facebook, people put pictures of their kids. They put details about where they've traveled to. You can see the insides of their homes. And so it's almost as if we've gotten so used to this so quickly. And when all of this emerged, no one was really asking the privacy questions, right? If we go back, what was it like a decade ago when Facebook kind of became something we were all talking about? A majority of people don't question it, right? I think maybe now the you know, technology in health or sharing some of my data around, for example, COVID-19 symptoms, all of a sudden it's in the context where there are more conversations, rightfully so again, around privacy and data protection. And so now all of a sudden we're hitting the pause button. In the context of the pandemic, it, there might be a cost to it because we don't have a lot of time to develop these innovations if we want them to be helpful, let's say for the next 18 to 24 months. How, Valerie, are you thinking through the challenge specifically with respect to tracing apps that hopefully allow us to re-engage with each other, with society comfortably, conveniently, and with a bit of security around our data and privacy. Using tracing technologies to complement the traditional manual process that is currently unfolding will make a difference. It will help us be more efficient in managing how the virus spreads and then will allow us to decontain more fluidly and not have to shut everything down again. Everyone who worked on COVID was clear on one thing, we have to give this a fair shot. <laughs> COVID is the, the Mila app, correct? Yes, exactly. So COVID is the name of the mobile application that was developed by a coalition of people uh, led by Joshua Benjo at Mila in the last few months. The privacy question was raised on day one. So we started with the premise that in Canada, we would not compromise on privacy and on human rights. And so if there was a technology that was collecting data to serve this collective purpose of health and pandemic management, it would have to meet the highest standards of privacy protection. If I had to summarize it, I'd say number one in the design was there is no data in the system that directly identifies someone. So name, phone number, address, so that we're never exposing a person directly. The second is the data collected was only data that was relevant to assessing the person's risk, and the data was deleted on a regular basis. The third piece was the whole governance structure. So we were setting up a independent non-for-profit organization whose core value was actually transparency to make sure that really the data and the system was managed with the sole purpose of helping us collectively face the pandemic and that everything would be folded up and deleted when the pandemic was over. As a doctor, as well as a medical researcher, Abhinav, how do you think about the power of these data-driven technologies and what they can do for the sort of work you're doing? If you look at how the technology has evolved in terms of our ability to deliver healthcare, there's certainly tremendous potential. Uh, as an example, we're doing a study looking at uh, if Amazon Alexa, like, you know, can be used to screen patients coming in and out of the hospital for symptoms of COVID. And, and I think that may be something that we have to think about is as we innovate and as we build these technologies, how do we adequately test them in a real world setting to make sure that they're safe, they're secure, that they actually do what they're supposed to do. 
for instance, with this voice technology, we're going to see, you know, uh, do people who have slightly different accents uh, or older people or people who have French accents or, or what I can the Alexa actually capture medical information in those settings, we actually don't know that. And so even some of these simple things that we don't necessarily think about have to be considered in the context of healthcare delivery when we're thinking about new technologies. How does Alexa know if I'm COVID positive? So what's happening is as individuals go in and out of the hospital, you actually have guards or people who are standing there asking and screening for symptoms. And so that creates sort of a layer of exposure to a workforce that's exposed to a lot of people coming in and out of the hospital and ER. We're now testing in, in some of the clinics, whether that individual can be replaced with an Alexa device, or at least have that individual, say, stand further back so that when I come in, the Alexa can ask me all of the routine questions. Have you been feeling unwell? Have you had a cough, fever, chills, diarrhea? Have you been in contact with someone with COVID-19? Now, these are things that you don't necessarily need a person to actually ask. And so if a voice-based technology can make it safer for the screening of those questions, we can build it. How do you both think about the risks of Covariables that you'll start to identify groups of people, maybe by demographics, that uh, could be at higher risk. And then that leads to lots of predictive conversations. But as we've seen with applications of AI elsewhere, there can be an enormous hidden risk of covariables, especially around demographics, coming into play. COVID 19 does not spread equally, it discriminates, and some groups are much more affected than others. So independently of technology, this pandemic is raising these questions around certain groups that are being more targeted by the virus. And then what that leads to in terms of our collective reaction to that positive and or negative. First of all, we've known since the start that elder people are much more vulnerable. The virus is hitting much stronger in poorer neighborhoods, which typically have more multicultural, multi-ethnical populations. By being preventive and being proactive, avoid us getting to the stage where an entire community would now be infected and targeted in the future as being at risk and then maybe potentially discriminated against. As we unfold these different technologies within the context of the pandemic or not, we have to be incredibly aware that we might be creating inequalities or inequities and how do we manage them both within the technology and then outside of it in the social context where they're being used. You know, sometimes the strongest predictor of an outcome is when you just look at someone's postal code and you see where they live. That effectively can tell you more about their long-term prognosis, unfortunately, than many of the routine clinical variables that we think about. As Val said, there is huge potential for technology, but there's also the potential to exacerbate existing inequalities. So for example, would populations even have access to mobile phones and data plans to be able to use various tracking technologies? Would the fact that various communities who have individuals who needed to go to work in the front lines and who may be more at risk of acquiring COVID-19, would we then see increased risk coming up in those communities and therefore those communities would be targeted. While the healthcare and technologies have the potential to really drive innovation, they also have the potential to worsen these issues. So those are things that as we develop technologies, we really have to make sure that we have that in the front of our minds as we move forward. While I was speaking to Valerie and Abhinav, I was fascinated by the way they discussed data sharing. With all the breaches of privacy that we've seen in the last few years, people everywhere are concerned about the rights they have to their data. That's fair. 
But what if data sharing was also viewed as a positive thing, something that could help us prevent pandemics like the one we're in, or generate early diagnoses for serious health conditions? It's vital that as we create new technologies, that the benefits are clearly communicated to the public. Otherwise, if these technologies aren't adopted, we'll never see the progress in healthcare that we know is possible. I wonder if I can turn the conversation a bit to the root challenges of the digital transformation of healthcare. I mean, after you've been writing about this and talking about this for a decade, probably longer, when you think about where we can go as a society out of this crisis, what do you think we need to come to grips with, both in our system and maybe outside the system, to take advantage of digital technologies to improve our approach to healthcare? There's several things that we have to think of right up front, as we mentioned before, about how do we create systems of data privacy and data security that people feel comfortable with, that uh, healthcare administrators, politicians, community members feel that this is a safe and robust environment that protects data, that doesn't sell data to third-party vendors, that doesn't you know, inadvertently have data leaks. The second is also recognizing some of the fragilities or frailties of our healthcare system that individuals don't have equitable access to these technologies. Here at the uh, MUHC and even in my clinic, we have a lot of uh, indigenous populations and people in rural communities where they have satellite internet phones. How do you even think about using technologies in that setting or that environment? And the third is the issues about cost. We do live in an environment where healthcare is considered a right. But are these technologies actually going to save us costs? Or is this a shiny new car that requires maintenance and upkeep and actually ends up costing more to maintain and to, uh, to keep these things running? So I think we have to think about these three aspects um, right up front as we consider some of these technologies and as we sort of roll forward. There is also a part of the answer, which I think is around the soft stuff, not the technology itself. And... What's coming up for me is the kinds of conversations we're having or not having about technological innovation. Of course, the conversation around possibility and leadership and disruption and actually like pushing that frontier forward, it sometimes feels like we shy away from that. It's uncomfortable to us, but there needs to be a place for that. There needs to be a forum where we can have the conversation about the big, bold dream and the incredible possibilities of innovation and the leadership role that Canada can play there. The, the how is so critical. And I suspect one of our quiet challenges, frankly, is that the healthcare system often operates in isolation. And as we know, innovation happens when systems integrate. And I'm wondering, Valerie, through the work of Mila, if we're seeing more of this or what the barriers are to getting more technologists, more entrepreneurs, more innovators working, interacting with healthcare professionals, but working to kind of shake up that system. My answer would be that it's very inconsistent. And so we've had the privilege because we were, we are discussing with Ottawa, to engage with different provinces and within each province with different kinds of teams, right? And I've been blown away by the literacy, the vision, the ecosystem thinking of some of the health officials that we've been engaging with. And exactly on the flip side of that, I've been flabbergasted by the inability to engage of other people who have the portfolio of technology on their desk. 
and they don't have the literacy. They're trying to analyze innovation in the same way they would analyze kind of basic plain vanilla systems. You feel like this gap across the country. And so I'm not sure how it will evolve. But certainly when you have the right people who get it and who, who become passionate about a possibility and push it forward, I think in the next year, we're going to see some of the provinces and or cities do some innovative stuff. And hopefully we all pay attention. Well, too often the system, and it can be hospitals, it can be doctors themselves, it can be governments, see innovation, they see technology as a procurement function. Exactly. Buy me some software or buy me the equipment. <laughs> and that's, that's not innovation. There's a lot of inertia with some physician groups and some individuals, especially those who seemingly have a mandate to advance innovation, yet are simultaneously hesitant to explore the option. I think some of that actually has to do with our training. We're grilled in from day one in terms of like, do no harm. And so sometimes do no harm means don't try or don't dare or don't think about what else could happen if we embrace this technology. And we don't look to build bridges with technology companies. We don't look to build bridges with government or with other groups to actually integrate and understand and learn about these technologies. Our podcast focuses on building a better, stronger, more innovative Canada. And, and how do we pursue innovation ambitiously, progressively, creatively, and collectively? And I wonder, as you both look out at the 2020s and try to look beyond COVID, what you see as the possibilities for healthcare innovation. Avina, let me start with you. What I would envision is a rapidly learning ecosystem where patients or individuals who interact with the healthcare, you know, researchers, scientists, doctors, technologists can all come together to actually rapidly test rapidly innovate and integrate this technology into uh, healthcare delivery, but it's on siloed. It's our ability to bring them together and to rapidly test things. If we can figure out a way to do that effectively, I think we would be able to distribute healthcare more equitably. We'd be able to use novel technologies to drive down costs. We can do more predictive work and more preventative work. So for myself, I see patients at the end of their trajectory when they've got very advanced heart failure, but how can we even prevent all of this from happening? So if we can create a learning ecosystem where individuals can come together to test, to validate in a way that aligns with our democratic principles, in a way that aligns with privacy and equitability, I think that's will really drive innovation forward. How much can we rely on technology to transform healthcare in the years ahead? Is this a true promise that we're on the brink of something transformational, especially when it comes to machine learning, but also other advances in digital technology? Or is it going to be more of a linear path, Valerie? What, what do you see in terms of the, of the curve of development coming out of this? Technologies that rely on machine learning and AI, they just have incredible capacity, capacity well beyond what the human brain can do. A human being can only scan through a certain number of images throughout their lifetime. A computer can scan through libraries of images within a few hours. And so that analytical capability, that powerhouse, can only deliver incredible progress and promise. The, the real question is how we're going to integrate that into a system where ultimately, again, we're treating human beings and the diagnostic and the whole system is around the healthcare provider, right? 
And so the promise is there. I think we're already seeing incredible advances. Then it's going to be a question of how we create this complementarity and collaboration between the human intelligence, the emotional intelligence of the human being, and the artificial intelligence and its analytical capabilities. If you could change one thing today about our approach to healthcare, Avinav, what would it be? I think right now, due to how we have set up our delivery of healthcare, it really makes it difficult for us to put the patient at the center of their healthcare delivery. And I think that's what we really need to do if we're going to make strides. I think sometimes it becomes very challenging to do so when we're limited by the healthcare infrastructure, by the ability you know, to only have healthcare delivered in certain settings. And so I think if we can start to change our paradigm around that, we can really move healthcare forward beyond 2020. I've heard you use a great description where you've said healthcare used to be guided by the motto, the doctor will see you now. And we're now in an age where the motto is the patient will see you now. Valerie, what's the one thing you would change about our approach to healthcare and our use of technology to get to that world where it is patient-centric? I think it would be about our collective ability to share data and use this data for the benefit of everyone. There continues to be a lot of fear and a lot of resistance in using data, as we discussed, that is tied to medical conditions or treatments. And if we were to get comfortable with that, what we'd be able to do in terms of accelerating research, accelerating discovery, and helping all kinds of different people who are sick and suffering would be incredible. I feel listening to you that as much as we've been talking for as long as I can remember about the healthcare system in this country, we're really just at the beginning of a wonderful and important new conversation about the digital transformation of healthcare which is not only critical to Canada, and it's going to become more so as we age as a society, but really can be among Canada's greatest contributions to the world. Thank you both for what you're doing in the midst of this pandemic, and also for being part of RBC Disruptors. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for the great conversation. Thank you very much, Sean. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today. After talking with Valerie and Abhinav, I'm really excited about what the future holds for the healthcare system. From our conversation, I'd say there are four key points that stood out. Number one, the future of healthcare is here. COVID has shown us that virtual healthcare is possible. Telemedicine and online doctor visits aren't hard. Yes, we will still need and want face-to-face -face contact for all sorts of reasons, but we need to focus on evolving to create a better, more inclusive and accessible system. Number two, data and privacy. Right now, we have an opportunity to help more Canadians be proactive with their health. But to do that, people need to be comfortable with the idea of allowing their data to be used through new technologies and protocols. The question becomes, so how do we clearly communicate the benefits of these new innovations and how data helps us get there? Number three, healthcare is global. We in Canada focus a lot on the balance of power between the federal and provincial governments, when surely the pandemic has shown us how health problems and health solutions are increasingly global. How can we ensure that the innovations being developed here in Canada are global in their ambition? And number four, humans matter. 
Yes, technology is going to increasingly shape healthcare, but without the human adoption of technology, we'll never see its potential. A cultural shift needs to take place in how we view the use of technologies and the implications of data sharing. Researchers and entrepreneurs can develop the best AI or equipment, but it's up to healthcare professionals and patients to talk through how to make this work in our daily lives. As Canada continues to fight the COVID pandemic, health tech has never been more important. So how can we continue to innovate? And how can we build our existing foundation to create a system that's more inclusive and accessible? It's up to all of us right now. You've been listening to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about innovation and how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. Disruptors is presented by the RBC Thought Leadership Group, and today's episode was produced by Quill and Origins Media House. If you like this episode, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear where you'd like us to take the conversation in future episodes. Until next time, I'm John Stackhouse, and this is RBC Disruptors.